Hi, everybody. Welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and books. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we have a special guest on, uh, Mel from Coffee with Comrades. Hi. Hey. This Hi. is Chris. And Ryan. This is Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Um, Clipping the mic. So, Mel's here because uh, she and I are both writers. We've had to deal with the uh, the big world of putting your words out there for people to read, uh, which some call publishing. Um, Mel, thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, no problem. So without much more ado, we're just going to dive into these wild notes I threw together at the last minute. Um, Mel, do you want to kind of talk about the early days of printing uh, since you... I think have a firmer handle on it than I do. Uh, a f- firm-ish handle firm-ish. on it. Yeah. I mean, so prior to the creation of the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press, the, mm. the, the way that most materials were printed were by hand. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly before uh, the 1500s and, and during the Middle Ages, Printing or reproducing any written text was expensive and painstaking and was often reserved for uh, people who could afford it. Church institutions were the main sort of producer of printed material mm-hmm. during that time, particularly in the in the West. Um, right. And, yeah, it was expensive. And so you see a lot of, like, monastic Christian texts are a big one prior to the creation of the printing press. And since, you know, these monasteries were institutions of knowledge and learning, they were usually the ones who were putting out this kind of information. Um, Mostly because that is where the vast majority of individuals got their education during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. You want to add something? You've got some notes in here too. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it kind of ties in with my understanding of, especially again in the West, quote unquote, uh, how universities were also places of essentially elite learning. So it was typically because of the expense and because of the ties to like the ecclesiastical order, the clergy, et cetera. Um, Glad things have changed since then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but in the old days, uh, universities and monasteries and all these places were just places where like the rich boys went, you know, and a few nuns maybe, but um, actually, do you know if, um, did did nuns also create their yes. own manuscripts and stuff? Oh yeah, no. There's like a there's a long history of of, of women writers who were abbesses and mm-hmm. had their own institutions of you know um, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's quite a few pretty amazing medieval texts written by women. Um, mm-hmm. I'd have to pull them up. They're on my shelf somewhere. I did a lot of study of that last year, I think. Um, Would you mind reading all of them in their entirety for us? Yeah, absolutely. The <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> great. It's There's some raunchy love poems, man. Come on. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have read about those. Um, I was actually more curious about... Because I knew that they had all their private letters and things like that. I was I was curious if they were part of the, like the formal industry. Yes. Uh, okay, okay. That's, yes. yes, they were. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, more, you know, none drone operators then, I guess. Um, 
but well, I mean, no, yeah. they they circumvented you know conventions of of um, women not necessarily being allowed to publish their mm. own written texts um, by being anonymous, by mm. using pseudonyms, mm-hmm. or in the case of some people like Marie de France, she actually signed all of her work, her written work that she published throughout through these you know institutional sort of paradigms under her own name. You mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She nice. she she wrote, "I name myself so that I may be remembered," and I think that's really. Huh. Really cool. Um, Did anything happen to her because of that? Uh, no, no. Nice. She <laughs> she lived a, she lived a long happy life. Published a lot of shit. Um, it helps that you know she belonged to uh, the higher classes of individuals. She was a cousin to a planet Jeanette, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so, you know, she's coming from a wealthy background, uh, you know, a, a landed, you know, almost royal background. So she mm-hmm. has the ability to do this. But yeah. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, yeah, in these extremely hierarchical societies, it helps to be an elite. But um, if you're from, say, uh, a less... Uh, powerful class like women in this particular structure it's still cool that you're able to you know get your shit out there mm-hmm. um, and take chances like that um yeah so i guess i was also interested in like the industrial aspect of um the development of printing printing presses and stuff ahead of what we now know as kind of modern publishing um so, of course, a lot of people will be familiar with uh, the name Gutenberg. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg in the mid-15th century put together uh, what we kind of think of as the printing press, which was based on earlier innovations that were familiar to Europeans, but just hadn't been cobbled together into this particular device yet. Um I was reading about it, and apparently the screw press, which is like the the big screw component that presses these um, movable type onto the the paper or the canvas or whatever you're working with, um, that was as old as like the Roman Empire. But of course, the Romans, in true Roman fashion, just used it to make wine <laughs> instead of like industrializing their printing operations. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. So that. It's it's interesting when you think about like the pace of innovations like that that could have been really useful for like the populace more broadly, but which probably because of those elite concerns um, didn't really make it out into uh, this usage. You know, for who knows? Sort of like of how you know the Chinese had gunpowder for hundreds of years and they didn't even use it to get in boats and massacre a bunch of people. Right. Yeah, what the yeah. fuck were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? Um, yeah, and so so Gutenberg, he put together like the screw press and then um, this hand mold is I think the term they used. Um, but it was kind of like this matrix on which to place the movable type and set it into place so that you could then... Uh, essentially like fix it to the screw I think or like put it under the screw and then clamp it down and then press the inked type onto paper and from there of course you could basically customize your your text using that type and put out just scads of 
you know, any material he wanted, uh, which was this massive uh, uh, change from the days, as you said, Mel, of like nuns, monks, and the like, uh, doing things by hand and illuminating these scripts and so forth. Um, well, I mean, it increased the literacy rate, mm-hmm. you know, by what a large percentage over the first, you know, five decades of the printing press being able to produce, you know, mass produce reading material and change the literary landscape in most of Europe at that time. Yeah. And, um, wasn't the first, I I mean, I'm pretty sure my memory is serving me correctly here, but the first thing that Gutenberg put out was a Bible. Yep. Yep. And so it was kind of tying itself to the tradition of publication of, you know, spiritual propaganda, if you will, religious propaganda, um, texts. Uh, but at the same time using this kind of revolutionary process to do so. And then that was kind of, uh, proof of concept that, yeah, like people could have, um, access to and use of, uh, this now extremely scalable, uh, sort of motive. Yeah. Publication. Right. Uh huh. And then of course, inevitably not only would literacy arise because now there's just more stuff out there and it's just kind of going everywhere. Um, but there's higher volume of, um, texts because there's, again, it's a scalable kind of enterprise or, or operation. And that leads to a kind of vernacularization. And I was reading that this may or may not have contributed to a lot of the kind of enlightenment and liberal era and like early modern era developments in like political culture and things like that, because people were suddenly exchanging all these ideas that the ideas were kind of mutating at a higher pace because of their transmission between people. And then um, people were embracing their vernacular languages more readily than using Latin uh, as the lingua franca um, because they were just putting out what was on their own minds. Um. History tends towards uh, Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... um... Mm-hmm. Um, Dante's Inferno is one of the first pieces that was uh, published in the Italian vernacular during the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, Petrarch is also one of the literary figures of the Italian Renaissance that wrote um, the majority of his work in the Italian vernacular. Prior to that, again, these religious texts were written in Latin, and mm-hmm. the majority of the learned language, right? This language of, of knowledge of, of um, the elites, right? Is mm-hmm. is Latin. If you know Latin, then you are, <coughs> you know, you are able to work within government. You're able to right. work within, you know, spiritual institutions like the, the Christian Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the Renaissance is marking a period of, of really trying to, to create literature that... Um, uh, other other people unlearned, if you will, the individuals mm-hmm. who spend their entire days speaking in the Italian or whatever vernacular language, um, get, accessing that, giving mm-hmm. them the ability to access that, mm-hmm. um, which then, you know, uh, 60, 70 years, 80, 100 years later, 
a couple hundred years later, actually, when the Renaissance reaches England, it's the same thing. You have people like mm-hmm. um, Milton and uh, Spencer writing in English instead of in right. the Latin language. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as like uh, the printing of materials, uh, generally speaking, at least in, in England and other areas, you had to have permission a specific sort of like tax stamp that would allow you to print a certain material. So in terms of like censorship, it's still pretty bad. There's, um, he's a contemporary of Spencer, um, Edmund Spencer. Um, I can't remember his name, but he printed something, some satire. It was part Mm -hmm. of a group of satirists in England Mm -hmm. who published some shit that pissed off some, the wrong people. And (laughs) they rounded up, all of his published work oh, and burned it. And wow. there's there's like this, we only know about this author by name now because all of his material was burnt and banned from, hmm. you know, the ability to like um, publish. Like right. his career was torpedoed. So, right. you know, um, as far as like, you know, in the early modern era with printing presses, these, these um, the ability to sort of circulate this written material still had uh checks by mm-hmm. state institutions mm-hmm. um that made you know the printing of any seditious material like some of the stuff that you and i would you know cut our teeth on at that time mm-hmm. uh it would be a you know jailable or even capital offense mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. to print this right and yeah. and, and to, to disseminate that information yeah, and that actually really contextualizes, I think, what many people in the States take for granted almost as like a figure of speech in the phrase, the freedom of the press, right? Which, you know, at the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution and all this, uh, that was still a major concern in a very immediate and kind of physical way because like there was a press probably... <laughs> in your town or a few of presses in your city that could just be wrecked or, you know, stopped somehow by the authorities. And they did so quite frequently, you know, throughout that uh, era. Um, So, I mean, yeah. Christian Europe also has a really long history of book burnings. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Book burnings. That's basically how they came to power, I think. Yeah. (laughs) By burning libraries yeah and it's, uh, it's a lot of, of a lot of text i was gonna say this earlier but i just mm-hmm. missed my chance uh a lot of texts from the european ancient world were preserved by arab scholars mm-hmm. who uh, went through the effort of copying them and mm-hmm. keeping them in their libraries and then they made their way mm-hmm. back over here yeah mm-hmm. yeah and that was a whole other mm-hmm. process that um i mean if we're t- if we're talking about um, the preservation of like Greek texts and stuff in particular, mm-hmm. and then yeah. the sort of rediscovery of European, you know, older Greek texts and stuff mm-hmm. via interaction with the Middle East, you know, particularly through th- things like the Crusades. Um, then that in large part led to the quote unquote Renaissance um, and the, you know, flourishing of the Western world in many ways. Yeah. Supposedly part of, the reason the Renaissance happened is because there was uh, for a long time, a church policy of uh, not like you couldn't, um, you couldn't like cite anything by a Muslim scholar. 
Hmm. And they stopped doing that. Hmm. And then magically science and math exploded. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of the time, um, like European scholars would just claim that, you know, either an ancient Greek or just themselves like wrote something that they got from Uh, Asia. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. uh, Yeah. So a lot of what we consider to be like European scholarship was actually, you know, from Asia. That makes sense too. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that was a tangent. No, (laughs) No, that's 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 a a good good tangent. tangent. Yeah. I mean, I choose to, whenever I'm, you know, spending some time in in Renaissance scholarship, I, I find it interesting that, you know, most people think it was like a, wasn't just like a rediscovery of these texts, right? Mm-hmm. It was, or uh, the rebirth of, of culture, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no such thing as dark ages, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Like the medieval world had its own culture. Um, but it's interesting to see how that contributed to um, innovation, mm-hmm. like the printing press and um, other cultural innovation that um, is sort of it's on its own thing. I, I, I think a lot about like Spencer, like English epic poets, like... Shakespeare, you know, those types of things that are pretty interesting given the, the time period and what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to kind of that early modern era where um, the printing press had now proliferated. It was kind of all over Europe. Um, obviously, the, the powers that be began their you know, several hundred year tantrum over the freedom of information, essentially, uh, which hasn't really stopped, um, only become more sophisticated. Um, I remember from my undergrad in English that a couple of my profs who specialized in the kind of, what, like 15 to 1700s, um, they talked a lot about like the era of ephemera, um, just basically like very tiny, um, publications that you could just, uh, get off the street. You know, they're being kind of hawked on the street. Maybe zines. it would be like a page or a half page. Yeah. They were like zines. They were like blog posts <laughs> yeah. of the time. It's pamphleting. And exactly. Pamphleting. Um, and it would be any number of genres, obviously, because people were just putting out whatever it was on their mind. Um, and like a lot of these things, as I understand it, and Mel, you can correct me, um, would be things like the quartos and folios that um, people like Shakespeare and other playwrights and, and writers and poets would put out. Um, am I am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And these these would be available for sale, or they would just be made available, kind of like the program at a play, or um, as far as, um, okay. Oh yeah. So generally speaking, you could order them. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, a lot of times you would order the loose pages and then get them bound. So if you, if you notice in a lot of like older, early modern libraries, all of the books have the same covers. It's because you ordered the loose pages from printers um, and then bound them yourself or had a book binder bind them. Um, so the uh, quartos are um, named for their size. 
like a quarter page kind of thing. Um, and generally speaking, um, yeah, you would, you would walk into a printer and you would say, do you have, you know, they would, they would, printers would have like a, if I'm remembering this correctly, would have an author's work in loose pages and you could say I would like a copy of that can you make a copy of that and you could buy it that way but generally speaking like there weren't really like bookstores really um until the mid 1900s the mid 1800s rather um yeah so um and that had there's a there's a whole like cultural significance to that and the 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 availability of of you know various works but generally speaking that's kind of the shorthand history of that okay cool now that's that's actually really illuminating and ties i think really well in with like what we're going to be discussing with the sort of the book industry the publishing industry um so i have some notes here about uh this early modern era where um small presses were everywhere um there was a development of just like we said, newspapers, magazines, gazettes, pamphlets, etc. All these small pubs, um, and this kind of set up a foundation for um, this culture that we have now. Fascist and- mass cult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sure. Yeah. According to exactly. the great scholar Phil Greaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like this was kind of. Uh, like a precursor for what we might even think of as like pop culture or mass cult, yeah. you know, um, there was just prepared narratives as I'm putting it here, um, floating around everywhere. And these small publications that, like you said, Mel, you could walk into a place and order a copy of something, um, click share, click like. Um, and I think that this is one of the reasons that, when we look at early modern Europe and early modern, like the colonial states and territories because of their attachment to the European uh, imperial projects and industries, um, why these times in these places are kind of more legible to us as early modern um, because things like this we're developing that are now kind of the norm to us now. Um, and capitalism as a mode, as a system, was also kind of firing up at the time. And there were, as we will see, uh, many different kind of elements of each interacting and meshing together as capitalism kind of co-opted this kind of um, uh, innovation. Um, so I found it interesting how the printing press and the sort of developments in publication uh, modes uh, greatly increase the potential for mass production and distribution of these prepared narratives, um, of these kind of vernacular um, ideas, really, and people's thoughts about their world and all the sort of philosophy that started swimming around. but meanwhile, the sort of the bourgeoisie and the capitalists um, were beginning to increasingly dominate economic activity, and liberalism was becoming more popular, and um, the press enabled sort of 
all of these things um, or was co-opted by, you know, people with power. Um, but well, it could also... leverage they even mm-hmm. uh, capitalists even leveraged the press in order to, to sort of... Um, uh, continue to switch and propagandize their narrative mm. against um, <clears throat> the aristocracy that was losing its economic sort of mm-hmm. prowess mm-hmm. in the wake of this, you know, growing merchant class. And mm. I think of like Matthew Arnold's terrible book. Um, now I'm going to forget the name of it, but essentially it talks about uh, the weak aristocracy and the need to uh, make sure that the working class has the right idea about the place in which they are supposed to be. And it's a, it's a great book. You should read it. Fume with me. Um, But yeah, no, just co-opting these narratives and using Mm -hmm. something like the printing press um, and it's the ability to make these sort of materials widely available is like a way to control that narrative. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there uh, some Robert Barron from the 19th century that was like the newspaper was the best investment I ever made or something like that. Um, maybe. I vaguely remember something like that. Probably Rockefeller. Probably. I, I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but it sounds right because, again, um, the press or the kind of information industry is extremely yeah. scalable. Right. So it makes sense if you're going to invest in something, you can invest in something like that that can just kind of go everywhere right. and always be making money if you're doing like the Fox News model and investing in people's like fear, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. Um, I think they also had like, they basically had the newspapers propagandize for their companies when yep, at labor agitated against them. Yeah. You see a lot of that. Um, I think what's also interesting is that the printing press and that, uh, the further development of that technology also enabled the printing of paper money. Right. So suddenly you go from the kind of, um, you know, coins and stuff with seniorage and all this other stuff we've talked about in previous episodes um, to like rather finely detailed um, and watermarked mm-hmm. paper money that you can create at very low cost, ostensibly, um, and essentially do what the state wishes to do with money, which is to kind of penetrate every decision of your life. Right. Um, but one of the cool things about, um, printing presses, uh, on the, on the other sort of hand is that they meant that, um, you could now create things like public libraries. (laughs) You and blocks. Yeah. And I think this, this kind of touches on Mel, what you were saying about like the eventual rise of bookstores um, as kind of a model. Um, but of course, libraries versus bookstores is kind of this interesting. Uh, there's a there's a tension there because bookstores are for profit and libraries are just you know for common use. Um, another thing that happened, which I'm sure I've talked about before, is that. Coffee and chocolate houses at the time, which um, came from European colonialism and trade and their exposure to other cultures and other commodities. Uh, So they adopted the coffee house and the chocolate house as kind of like... um, How did chocolate houses disappear? I don't know. It sounds dope. We need more of those. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly. (laughs) 
I yeah. think they fuse them into coffee houses, uh, like yeah. a chocolate s- a snack now, as yeah. opposed to like a. Did drink. you have those delicious uh, chocolate covered coffee beans? Oh yeah, those are good. <laughs> um, That's pretty they much did, the apex of civilization, I think. Yeah, they <laughs> declined with the rise of the diner. That's what it is. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. So these. I places, have no idea if that's actually legit. I'm just saying that's probably what happened. I mean, I guess if it's between a, a chocolate house and a waffle house, I guess I'd probably pick waffle house. Same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same. So there's a an interesting theory of the like the coffee house, the chocolate house, and I think the diner as well uh, counts for this anyway, which is that they are a third place which replaced the disappearing commons. Um, so people were like, well, I don't want to be at home. And obviously I don't want to be at work. I want to be where people are so I can talk to them or selectively ignore them or whatever. Enjoy myself though. So coffee, chocolate, diners, etc. That's kind of where you ended up going. And this touches on, you know, like the rise of like everything's consumerism. Everything's a transactional activity. But in these places, you're at least allowed typically to kind of hang out. And because of that, and because of the burgeoning of um, the printing industry, publishing industry, people would show up to these places. They'd be from all sorts of walks of life, um, and they'd end up chatting. They would interact with the ephemera, um, these various publications that were laid out in these places to enjoy, um, whether it was newspapers or magazines or pamphlets or you know what have you. And then this they would ex- underwrite ship voyages. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was one of the things that they would do is they would have like a chalkboard or something and they'd write up like, okay, who wants to essentially bet on this venture, invest in this venture. Um, and it would be a ship or something, usually a ship. I, I got to get this one out now too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if it's a coffee house, but it's a house made of coffee. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Happily. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, one of the interesting th- sort of aspects of this is that um, the the sort of third place full of um, small publications where people were imbibing in stimulants and snacks and stuff. So they could stay there like all day if they felt like it and just, you know, receive and discuss information with whoever was around and the acceleration of the availability of information and sort of the motivation for people to be interacting with each other over like all sorts of ideas and you know news about politics war scandals gossip whatever um essentially formed in combination an accelerator for capitalism as well as like radical politics and also many um as I remember, as I recall, reactionary politics, like a bunch of like, essentially like trad trad casts, you know, running around, like trying to reassert Catholicism on things like that. And then people would have these arguments and, and all this shit. And then of course that would lead to more conflict and that would lead to, um, often more repression. Like, Oh, these people are causing a stir and we have to stop these commoners from talking and causing mobs and, you know. The the uh, Dark Renaissance by Nico uh, Plaza. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And uh, so basically, they were the first shit posters in a sense. Um, it was like that era's equivalent Meme of work. getting high and sitting online for hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let's see. Oh yeah, and then as we discussed in what uh, an episode or two ago. The UK in particular was also working on increasing the quality of their roads and their road system throughout this era, which meant that not only were they getting more information, you know, and broader information from many, many sources through the press, but they were getting it faster mm-hmm. um, and probably more completely because there's just more and more and more coming in all the time. Right. Um than people were elsewhere in the world. So this is kind of just saying, again, this is an acceleration kind of dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it probably felt to them a lot like the kind of Web 2.0 has felt to us, mm-hmm. where you're just like, whoa, holy shit, there's just like information and disinformation. You can get a letter from times. someone in like a day or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is just madness. Yeah. How am I supposed to keep up with this? You know? <laughs> Um, any thoughts on that, Mel? Um, no, I have more thoughts later on industrial processes than I okay. do on these. So. Cool, cool. So yeah, so that kind of just sets the stage. Um, I didn't really put much in for the the next stage, which is essentially that like early industrial kind of nineteenth century publishing. Um, but you did allude to that. Um, Um, you just mean about the history of industrial publishing? I mean, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff comes out of being able to um, mass produce material, mm-hmm. and particularly with publishing in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. you have the rise of of yellow journalism. Oh yeah, during that time, mm-hmm. and the sort of sensationalism that comes from um, the sort of odd journalistic practices of the time, um, <laughs> particularly the sort of accounts that come out of journalists and, and upper-class individuals who continued the practice of slumming it in, like, London's to East End and stuff. And oh, yeah. Going undercover into workhouses and coming out with very uh, homoerotic sort of accounts <laughs> of what goes on in the workhouses <laughs> and stuff. Just weird stuff coming yeah. out of that, right? And then being mass-produced... Um, and sort of published in these various magazines and periodicals and mm. newspapers at the time. You know, we're talking about Victorians who would get into like long, drawn out, like shit post fights, right? <laughs> uh, where they're, you know, they're publishing letters in these periodicals and starting fights with uh-huh. other prominent other Victorians. There's a lot uh-huh. of really hilarious stuff that happens. Um, and, and you're talking about like the essentially elites in this case, mm-hmm. right? Well, yes. they're, you would, they're all considered, you know, the literary elites, right? You know, right. you're thinking of like Edinburgh's Blackwood, Blackwood's mm-hmm. Magazine, which is, right. you know, the literati of Scotland and, you know, all these various groups that are mm. upper middle class, merchant class or aristocracy uh, yelling at each other <laughs> <laughs> in these periodicals, <laughs> essentially, right? right? So basically Real Housewives. <laughs> 
essentially yeah or you know the same sort of like um the twitter drama that we see today Mm, is just one one um permutation of the same bullshit right the the quote tweeting and calling out yeah and and all that fun stuff it's been going on for forever but um you know the industrial processes um created a rise in the sort of like dime novels of various genres like the penny dreadfuls and the mm-hmm. other things right these these pieces of pop culture that previously were um it was impossible to to create that sort of like consumable um prior to more industrialized printing mm-hmm. practices and it you know um here's a little fun tidbit mm-hmm. um Sort of tangentially related. Willis Carrier, the guy who invented electric air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird you're talking about that and the air, co- air conditioning just kicked on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah, summoned he Willis. Uh, well, he worked for the Sackett Willems Lithographing and Publishing Company in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, New York. And they were having trouble lining up um, print pages in this mm massive print warehouse right um because it was too hot it was this really hot summer Mm -hmm. and you know god forbid the people working in that warehouse are dying of heat stroke it's fine but (laughs) you know the ink didn't dry properly so they created so willis carrier created electric air conditioning in order to make the process more streamlined so that they didn't have to continue throwing out fucked up pages that didn't have the right kind of um temperature for ink to dry properly. I just think that's an interesting story. You know, we have this, it, it creates this rise of this particular industrial process that um, made up a vast majority of factory jobs or, or contributed to uh, a very large portion of the industrial economy in various Western countries. So, yeah. you know, um, and publishing was, um, I don't know. Just uh, it's just an interesting sort of place to be as a artist, I guess. And you know, like people used to, you have in your notes that it was derided as a purely commercial affair that cared mm-hmm. more about profits than literary quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it's kind of true. Oh yeah, but. and that's <laughs> most of what we're about to talk about. Again, yeah. I'm glad that these things have changed since then. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So basically, like. Um, it's my favorite part about reading history in general, just seeing how different everything is than, than yeah. the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things are totally different. Um, yeah. It's just kind of funny thinking about how, like, it's extremely commercial and it's just a bunch of rich kids just, like, shitting on each other, you know, in public. And then, like, half the promising artists out there just, like, can't, get published to save their lives almost literally to save their lives you know (laughs) just because yeah we have moved so far past that this uh (laughs) in this new promising millennium yes absolutely Mm. yeah thank you jeff bezos i let a candle for you every night um yeah fuck that guy (laughs) um so yeah so and this is kind of how you know the the tentacles of capitalism have wrapped themselves around the world of art in this particular form to kind of choke off the supply of 
actual worthwhile literature. Um, I don't like the implication that capitalism is an octopus because octopuses are cool. That's true. I, I apologize. <laughs> um, let's just pretend it's like a robot ocupu- octopus that's trying to kill the real the robo tentacles of yeah, capitalism. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, it extends beyond just straight literature too, mm-hmm. right? For-profit publishing companies mm-hmm. that create the textbooks that are sold to the the high schools. And the, the elementary schools where our children are educated mm-hmm. and, you know, those for-profit companies essentially have 100% control over what type of information they put into a textbook. So yep. you can whitewash your history to the nth degree and, and mm-hmm. no no one's going to stop you. Exactly. Right? And you're incentivized to do so because, right. you know, big business loves big business. You know, it's just one billionaire to another. Um, right. Yeah, well, and it's drugs. like, you know, and, you know, like I think of, um, you know, you have Pearson PLC is one of the global publishing operations on in these notes, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their their text, their history and, and literature textbook offshoot, I forget the whatever it's called, mm-hmm. um, has essentially contracted with every single high school in, in like say for example the state of Texas, mm, right? Yeah. And are like is the only corporation that you can buy textbooks from in order to to furnish textbooks to your your school district. So right. there's like there, they've there's insidious ways that that these types of um, this mi- misinformation essentially mm-hmm. this you know, that's been uh, turned into like official propaganda is, is disseminated to education centers and learning centers and and you know so it, the problem with with printing and publishing extends far beyond you and I's issues with the mm-hmm. the 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 fiction publishing industry true you know true and it's i want to say of course that the educational side of it is one of the more deeply insidious aspects of the industry because of that Mm. Um, the control over people's awareness of their own past Mm -hmm. um yeah so the and then university publishing is crazy too with Oh yeah! How you have to pay like forty dollars to read a, a journal article? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> or uh, I think one of the things they do for started. like for like uh, <laughs> science journals is mm-hmm. they take all the really important ones and they bundle them with a ton of other like crap ones that no one yep. wants. So if you want Nature, which is like the main science journal, yep. you have to pay like a million dollars a year mm-hmm. uh, for this big package of. Mm-hmm other journals in order mm-hmm. to get it and so they just squeeze tons of money out of universities that way yeah they in addition to like having you have to you have to pay to publish science articles and shit like that mm-hmm. yeah they also institute two three four year long embargoes on recently published work so that mm-hmm. you're required to buy the journal in order to read it right so a lot of times especially with literature uh, um, analysis and and in scholarship, mm-hmm. you won't be able to find the most recent articles um, simply because they r- want you to, you know, do write a subscription and or to to pay for one, mm. which would make sense if they were paying the scholars that they solicit articles from, but <laughs> exactly. they don't. Mm-hmm. They do the opposite, actually. You gotta, you gotta go through fucking hell in order to even get published in a journal, and you don't get paid for it. Yeah, yeah. fancy that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you um, have to have Patreons for scientists. <laughs> yeah, seriously, 
they already exist. <laughs> um, but yeah, Chris, you seem to have a better conception of like actual traditional publishing than I do. Okay. I don't know. I'll take your word for it. Um, I, but I, I haven't, I haven't necessarily had like a whole lot of personal experience with traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, Besides, you know, sort of academic interest in how it works. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I was very fortunate in undergrad to have a couple of different mentors who were successful in the traditional publishing realm. Um, one who wrote children's fiction and has been putting out like a book a year for like the past forty years, um, and then the other was a more recent kind of. Um, you know, creative but still unexpectedly successful poet uh, from the Midwest scene. Um, and then, as with, I think, many, you know, worthwhile English or literature programs, there was like a yearly um, writing festival kind of thing where they would invite various authors and um, industry professionals to come and talk about the world of books and writing and you know uh, publishing and editing and all this stuff so I got quite a lot of information about especially traditional publishing because I went to undergrad in the you know twilight years before the rise of the current forms of self-publishing that are much more kind of accessible and can be much more profitable than Um, the kind of 19th, 20th century sort of self-publishing models. So I was going to just give some of my insights and a little bit of the additional research that I put into um, traditional publishing and then the current uh, forms. Well, the the 19th to 20th century self-publishing and then the current forms of self-publishing that are being popularized. So... In traditional publishing, as in industrial publishing, um, the publishing houses like Penguin, Random House, um, they kind of act as venture capitalists on one side, um, as well as being producers. So they place bets on books in much the same way as venture capitalists place bets on startups or other initiatives where they say, hmm, you know, do we think that this is going to do well on the market? Mm -hmm. Do we think that this book by this writer is going to sell X amount of copies or more? And they do what capitalists do. They perform some kind of fancy risk analysis. They perform, you know, some kind of sales analysis uh, based on what's on the market at the time. And as with um, venture capitalists, they anticipate that a lot of their investments, they won't do that well, and some will fail, but that some of their investments will do spectacularly well. So they kind of design their bets that way. They want to put out a high volume of books, you know, these big houses do. They want to put out a high volume of books so that they kind of maintain a grip on the market. Mm -hmm. They want to take risks, just enough risks, um, so that like 
some might fail, quote unquote, like, you know, not get as many sales as they want. Um, but that again, a few will do spectacularly well, you know, um, the JK Rowling's, the Stephen King's, etc. So they are generally effective in insuring themselves against risk in this way, because again, they're using the logic of the venture capitalist, right? They put enough money in to put, you know, say the initial run of books out per, you know, uh, sorry, physical copies of a book per book, you know, um, and hopefully pull in a profit. And there's a whole like other rabbit hole with like distribution and wholesale and all these bookstores out there. Um, big bookstores like Barnes and Noble, small bookstores like, you know, the mom and pops and stuff. Um, and we don't even have to get into like used bookstores and stuff because that's not really part of the publishing industry per Mm -hmm. se. So, um, but yeah, while this kind of betting approach that is extremely kind of capitalist minded, um, is generally effective in keeping them from risking too much and in, in terms of finance, you know, in terms of profits, it has really detrimental effects for creators and for the quality of the writing that is often put out. Um, because they're looking for a sure thing, you know, they want something that they can quantify and predict, Mm -hmm. which means that like, this is fine if you're a farmer, right? Yeah. (laughs) This is great. If you're an architect, you're like, well, I want this many beams and this many tiles and I want it to last a hundred years or whatever. That's great. Uh, But in terms of these scalable enterprises where you're just disseminating information or art or some combination thereof, as with literature, um, it can be really problematic because this risk aversion turns into a kind of conservative cultural skew, right? And that includes um, often being averse to the kinds of artistic innovations that are possible and that many authors um, and say illustrators who are part of the publishing industry as well are putting out there or hoping to put out there. So the creativity of the industry is limited by the financial sort of paranoia (laughs) of capitalism, you know? Um, And so it's not even just that like, Oh, editors are fuddy duddies or anything like that. A lot of editors are actually writers themselves and that's how they got into this stuff. And a lot of them are, they would love to see more books out there, more creative books out there. Um, But then the internal operations of these houses are also very, you know, corporate style. They have, these editors processing these slush piles as they call them. And, um, like Mel, you know what that is, Ryan, do you know what a slush pile is? No idea. Okay. So a slush pile is basically, (laughs) it's all of the fucking manuscripts that get submitted to the house, just piled up. (laughs) And there are so many because there's so many creative people out there and Uh people who aspire to at least put out one book. You yeah. know, that these poor editors and the interns, of course, are inundated with like 
tens of thousands of copies per year and they basically review each manuscript the way that like your average hiring manager now reviews a resume they give it like 10 seconds wow yeah so it is brutal mm-hmm. um and the reason part of the reason that this occurs is because the big houses have an oligopoly right mm-hmm. they are the only ones with enough capital to make bets but their bets are uh risk averse mm-hmm. for you know profiteering purposes and so they're not just going to go okay you gave me a manuscript i'll just put it in my digital library or whatever and we'll be able to print it at any time mm-hmm. and this is a foreshadowing of the other stuff by the way um they'll just take the first page of like a um submission like a proposal letter essentially and they'll look at it and be like not really what we're looking for and pretty much you'll never hear from them again right so people like actually jk rowling um she's kind of one of these paragons of both the negative and the positive side for an author in this Mm -hmm. process where she submitted for a long, long time. She just got rejected, 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 rejected. Then when she finally made it, she made it big. Yeah. So of course, as is typical of the capitalist ideology, everyone says, well, maybe I could be JK Rowling, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm going to like accept this horrible process because there's like a lottery chance that I'll get billions of dollars. Um, in the meantime, no, that won't happen for you. I'm sorry. You know, um, I mean, and it's, it's incredibly coercive for the people who do get accepted. Mm -hmm. Say for example, you get Mm -hmm. accepted by a traditional publishing house. Mm -hmm. They will advance you a certain amount of money Mm -hmm. that you are required to pay back. Usually with sales, you try to pay it back with book sales, which is why you want your book to get big because Mm -hmm you are ultimately paying for the process. Exactly. So if you can't if you don't sell a whole lot of copies, you are still on the hook for whatever that advance is, which can be up to, you know, 200, 300,000 dollars or yeah, more, you know, yeah. a million dollar <laughs> book deal or whatever, right? Yeah. That's, that's like Milo Yiannopoulos <laughs> lost his book deal mm-hmm. and was required to pay that money back to the publishing house, which is one of the main reasons why he went bankrupt. Yeah. Well, in most <clears throat> you know? cases that sucks, but in this case, I'm going to say, ha, Oh, it's ha, beautiful. Ha. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's the one example that I'm thinking of, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like, so even if you're accepted by a traditional mm-hmm. publishing house and you go through the whole process mm-hmm. and you don't make it JK Rowling big, like mm-hmm. you could potentially bankrupt yourself and, and, you know, damage any chances at creatively, you know, reaching that far ever again, essentially. Exactly. And I've heard that if the, let's see, I've heard that if you get an advance and your royalties, excuse me, your sales don't break even on the advance, if it was a smallish advance, they may just kind of write, write it off and be like, well, you know, we're not really that interested in you after all, but you don't have to pay it back. It's fine. But they can choose to make you pay it back. And I think that depends largely on your relationship with them, which is a bit like sucking up to the boss so you don't get fired, you know? So or, basically, yeah. Or if you have a if you have a smart agent, um, if you go the route of mm-hmm, submitting mm-hmm. to an agent first, mm-hmm. hopefully they would put some sort of uh, negotiate some sort of clause in your contract with this publishing house that if you don't make 
a certain percentage of sales mm -hmm. by a certain period of time, then the publishing company won't require you to pay back the advance. Yeah, yeah. You know, but if you're a big enough fish or they give you big enough money, they're going to ask for it back. Exactly. Again, it's a cost-benefit analysis, and they yep. want to make sure that they're not losing too much on uh, a roll of the dice. Exactly. And what's also interesting is when you look at the breakdown of like the proceeds of a book, you know, the return on the sale. Um, this example that I pulled from, I think, uh, I forget if it was Wikipedia or Quora. I think it was Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, I'll just read it right off. Um, it is a common practice that the author signs the contract awarding him or her only around 10% of the proceeds of the book. Such a contract leaves 90% of the book proceeds to the publishing houses, distribution companies, marketers, and retailers. One example uh, of the distribution of proceeds from the sale of a book was given as follows. 45% to the retailer, 10% to the wholesaler, 10 and a few decimals percent to the publisher for printing, 7.15% to the publisher for marketing, 12.7% to the publisher for pre-production, and then 15% to the author in royalties, which is, of course, after the advance breaks even. Um, then... 45% of the retailer is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, I mean, this is just another example of, like, the expectations of capitalist business when it comes to the kind of money that they're trying to make, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, retailers don't even do anything. They just own shelves. <laughs> right. They get like, almost half of the money. Right. Like, there's something to be said for, like, the staff um, working the space and keeping oh, no. things nope. in. Really? No? Really. I worked at Barnes & Noble for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So you they, just open the they, doors? Pretty much. And, you know, stock the shelves. And What do they uh, pay there? Like nine bucks an hour? Pretty much, yeah. And you know the the 45%. retailer <laughs> the retailer marks up the the price a lot of the time. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, um, they'll 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 fuck with the printing so that it only costs like two bucks to print the book, mm -hmm. but they'll they'll uh, set the price that's on the back of it. Mm -hmm. um, and Barnes and Noble does a lot of that. But the fun fact is, is that after a certain printing, um, you go through all the shelves with a scanner. Um, and if it beeps at you, you take the book. This usually happens like twice a year. You'll mm -hmm. take the book to the back. Uh, you'll put it on a shelf that'll go back to the publishing house. But you'll rip the front cover off. Oh, yeah. I've heard about this. Yes. My mom so had a you, job doing that when I was a kid. Yeah. Coach. You yeah. rip the front cover off and you send the covers back and then you chuck mm -hmm. the rest of the book. So it's just a waste of paper. Ah, worst job ever. I hate it. Christ. I hated it. But yeah, so as far as like the retailer making all the money, yeah, that's that's a big thing. It's, mm -hmm. And doesn't you, most employees don't really see it, especially at Barnes and Noble. They fired all their full time employees, so you know, it's fine. Capitalism, it's good for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, makes you thinner. It's fine. <laughs> right. Um, then. The, there's this line about there's a common misconception that publishing houses make large profits and that authors are the lowest paid in the publishing chain. And the funny thing is that like 
there are people who make a shit ton of money being in charge of publishing houses uh, and the like conglomerates that control, you know, printing and distribution, all this bullshit. Um, because they don't just sell one book. Like, <laughs> so this is kind of uh, muddying the waters here. Anyway, um, so, so we've now kind of covered a lot of the traditional publishing. Um, I didn't want, really want to get into like distribution too much. Um, there are, of course, small presses that are out there, um, whether they are just you know printers or they're publishers or there's some combination thereof. Um, but as with a lot of small businesses, uh, I think your mileage may vary with kind of how well they do. Um, hard to really say. But they definitely don't have the kind of capital the big ones do to take risks on a lot of different publications. Um, and so they tend to be like boutique um, or they just put out like a... Like AK Press and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, or they like, you know, people like us who just put things out on Patreon or, yeah. <laughs> or like have zines or something. Um, any more insights, Mel, before we move on to self-publishing? Well, I mean like small presses that are, isn't AK Press like a co-op model though? Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah, those di that distribution is, you know, AK is sort of the co-op collective model of worker-owned independent presses, which is an interesting, a sort of interesting thing to examine. Um, I didn't do enough research for this episode, <laughs> but, um, you we know. We do that every the, episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, just like the idea that um, in a worker-owned sort of like co-op, model mm -hmm. generally you would think that those who are publishing with that small press are going to be seeing a much larger portion of the profit or the royalties or own all of the profit uh beyond the cost of you know making and selling i don't know i'm, I'm wondering i'm mm -hmm. curious to see how that looks in mm -hmm. you know an independent press um mm -hmm. is it sort of just a vehicle for printing on demand is it you know, uh, does the press own the rights to the book? Uh, is the author, you know, leasing the sort of, you know, licensing this work to this press in order to print it, in order to sell it? Like, I'm interested in seeing how that. Yeah, I don't think it's print on demand out. because you can like go to an online bookstore and find books by AK Press and just buy them. Mm. True, true. Yeah. But I just mean like in 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 various other paradigms. Like, yeah. Yeah. How does I'm, that I'm look? interested how they get how they got the capital to start printing in the first place. Um they've been going since what, nineteen ninety nine? Oh that's it. Have, oh. They've been they've been sinking the majority of their money directly back into the right. the distribution and press itself because mm -hmm. it is it's only it's worker owned by like what, seven people? Oh wow. Yeah. Um okay. And the vast majority of the money that they make goes directly back into the business. They mm -hmm. don't, they don't really, I think for the first like five or 10 years, it was literally just sinking money into it um, and being a distribution center for radical uh, publications mm -hmm. um, until they, you know, got up enough 
cash just by constantly trying to scale the business without padding their own pockets um, so that they could start printing their own work um, and <clears throat> having authors submit to them and sort of go that route. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, it's interesting to to see how that plays out. I'm not sure. I haven't done enough research. I mostly know most of this because I've been attempting to try and figure out exactly how I could replicate that model in my own um, little plan cool. B after leaving academia. <laughs> <laughs> it's an independent, you know, radical bookstore and learning center and publishing arm. So we'll see yeah, how that goes. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of potential out there, especially these days. Mm. Um, and there have been some innovations in um, like print on demand and stuff. Mm-hmm. which segues us somewhat smoothly <laughs> to um, POD, POD, the band. band, and the Pable rise on death. Pable on death. <laughs> Pable on death books. Um, and the rise of self-publishing in the current era. But first, I'm going to just kind of mention uh, self-publishing in the, let's say, early industrial publishing era um it seems to have gone from the kind of you know the pre steam engine era where it was like you could kind of self-publish through a small press in your town and it was perfectly reasonable to do so and a lot of people did so um and it was just kind of up to you to figure out whether you were going to make money on that or not Uh, but then as sort of industrial publishing rose and these big houses took over um then self-publishing turned into uh, a less viable uh, approach because of the amount of capital that it took to put out a book that you might expect to sell at some large scale. So there were these things that people called vanity presses, and I'm sure they still exist in some form or other. Um, This is one thing that... Uh, my one prof in particular warned everybody about, he's like, don't, don't ever self-publish. That's just, it's bullshit. Like you'll just sink your money into something that won't sell because blah, 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 blah. Vanity presses were just set up to essentially take your money, print out a bunch of books that you then have to sell yourself, like physical books. You know, uh, this is prior to, you know, the rise of eBooks and the rise of like today's print on demand services. Um, but another interesting thing about uh, this prof, my, my, my mentor, was that he kind of had this notion, this kind of, I hate to say it, but slightly bootlicker notion that like, if you can't get approved by a publishing house, then your story either isn't worth publishing or just like isn't ready yet and you need to keep working on it and all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, that might be what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta have you have to pass through the ultimate gate in yes. order to you know be a legitimate right published author mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. which is still the prevailing notion in, in many literary circles. Unfortunately, yes, yes. Yeah, I, w- I was kind of thinking it might actually be the rise of bookstores that are responsible for the existence of large industrial publishers because that's like where the model makes the most sense. Is uh, you know the books that people are able to read or that people, you know, can read are um, basically controlled by a small handful of people. Mm-hmm. So if you're 
someone who has all of the printing capacity, then you can basically like negotiate directly with them. Yeah. I mean, it used to be like way back in the day, it used Mm -hmm. to be like a Sears catalog of literature, right? right? Like if it wasn't in a serialized in a periodical or anything like that, then Mm -hmm. like actual novels and books like that, you Mm -hmm. could pick out of a Sears catalog. And I think I remember getting some book catalog when I was a kid. Yeah, it's the sort of scholastic shit, but like, oh, yeah, yeah, but like, generally speaking, that's how you know those books were sold way back in the day, if I remember correctly. Hmm. You know, so you could order it through the catalog, it would be printed on demand and then sent to your house. Mm -hmm. Or bookstores, the rise of bookstores was essentially ordering two of everyone in the catalog and putting it on a shelf, you know, right, right. So basically since the, I want to say like just early 2000s or so, um, through Amazon and maybe like one or two other, oh, Barnes and Noble had this thing too. I think they still Mm -hmm. do this. Um, They developed these self-publishing services that initially were treated with sort of suspicion and contempt by the literary establishment and by authors who were already established um, so forth and so on because of this gatekeeping culture and all this bullshit. Um, also because at the time these services were not really refined, these businesses were still figuring out kind of how to, uh, really do this well, you know, and kind of artfully and in a way that was also, you know, profitable for them. But in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, the process has gotten smoother. The, the services have gotten better. Um, the sort of devil's bargain that you have to strike with them to get your work out there is just a little bit less painful. <laughs> um, and in my case, you know, I put out some eBooks for virtually free and then it was up to me to, you know, make sales, you know, um, so in this case, it's like you are still fronting your own capital, uh, not by trying to pay off in advance, as with the traditional model, but simply by paying out your own cash for things like marketing um, or like book covers. Um, and it's at least technically possible to you know design and print your own book without the help of, say, you know Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, but it is much more difficult, which is why I ended up just going through Amazon, even though I fucking hate Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, so this kind of opens up, I think, a lot of possibility and kind of re... Uh, it, it loosens up, I think, people's notions of like... L- uh, not eligibility, uh, legitimacy mm, yeah. when it comes to publications and the kinds of um, work that you're putting out there. And uh, Mel, you put some notes in here about the potential for self-publishing and small presses. Um, and I kind of want to hear your thoughts kind of elaborating on that. Well, I mean, like, um, as we've sort of talked about, mm-hmm. Traditional publishing ventures are looking for the easiest sell, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. means, you know, the narrative is going to be, um, it's going to have its wings clipped a yep. little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you're trying to appeal to the largest possible consumer base. Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily interested in publishing uh, radical literature or uh, what quote controversial <laughs> opinions mm-hmm. or ideas mm-hmm. or things that could potentially you know challenge the cultural um, hegemonic structure, right? Like these types of things that are going to like make people think and potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, want to consider more radical forms of, of, of restructuring both cultural spaces as well as, you know, political spaces. And um, so self-publishing your work is one of those ways to sort of get around that, um, mm-hmm. you know, for for various reasons. If you, if you are willing to self-publish your own work, um, a lot of times, especially if it's digital, you're not sinking a whole lot of money into the process. Right. right. Like, um, so you're not necessarily going to lose a whole lot of, of money if, mm. if, um, the, the book itself is not particularly successful in the conventional sense. And, um, if you're looking to do sort of print ideas, you know, the Amazon print, print on demand is, is, you know, something that's also going to potentially not give you too much of a hole to climb out of when you're you're using that type of stuff but i just mean like in in terms of like the controlling of content and Mm -hmm. the ability to sort of um (laughs) the ability to to, the ability to just publish your opinions Mm -hmm. dissenting or other otherwise right Mm -hmm. um you have much more leeway in in how you structure that and what you can say than mm-hmm. you would with you know more traditional avenues of publishing, and and same thing with radical newspapers and zines and self published work. Like, there's a long legacy of, of uh, disseminating seditious material. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> uh, you know, within within the realm of of these these areas, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't like what the New York Times is saying, then uh, you publish in Protein Magazine. Hey, what's up? Right. You know, hey. like. Like that kind of shit, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. if if we feel that we are being underrepresented in in media spaces, then we can create our own media space, and that's yes. you know one of the cool things about self publishing and about you know these these projects that are more uh, DIY or counterculture is that mm-hmm. we have the ability to do that, and the internet makes it you know ten times easier. Mm-hmm. Um. I just think of like, you know, digital libraries like the Anarchist Library and things like that that are, right. you know, sort of aggregating these, um, you know, fucking centuries of, of good leftist political writing in one mm-hmm. space, you know, and, and being able to, to give you high quality PDFs so you can print any of that shit on mm-hmm. your own without the need of, you know, having to go through the, the shitty centrist gatekeepers that are <laughs> traditional publishing houses. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. When you can, again, like it's the idea of radical, these are all the comments that I've been making uh, in various conversations over the last couple of years. But, you know, if we're if we're looking to sort of restructure economically mm-hmm. uh, any sort of con, con section of our of our own economy in into, you know, worker owned spaces, then this is one of those arms of that. Right. Like radical presses is co-ops or worker owned collectives, much like Protean magazine is. It's worker-owned, you know, um, mm-hmm. and we have chosen not to pay ourselves, but to make sure that writers are paid a living wage when they choose to publish with us, right? And it's like we, our budget is tiny and a little shoestring, but you know we get it done. And so, like these ventures are like, there's no. 
I don't know. There's there's a lot there. There's a lot of potential there for for disseminating good information and creating a much more robust literary quote canon than what is currently allowed by uh, uh, various well-established publishing and scholastic structures, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know? Um, well, I think that's actually a pretty solid spot to wrap up unless you guys had any final comments or plugs you wanted to throw in there? Um, I was thinking about how um, this is going to kind of date the show, but there's this whole debate now about whether Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post to like use it as a vehicle for oh. propagandizing in favor of Amazon or whatever. I wouldn't be surprised. Which, like, <laughs> yes. I mean, he I more mean, or less said it explicitly because yeah. he was like, "He is Jeff Bezos." He so. he made a he made some comment about how like oh, this mm-hmm. isn't like a profitable investment. I'm doing it for reasons other than to make money. And it's like, hmm, yeah. What other reasons could there be? Like, yeah, the you, capitalist <laughs> propaganda arm of yeah. Amazon. Are we right. supposed to believe like, that he wants to do the right thing and right. <laughs> like? And I mean, no. like, uphold journalism new... as a principle. Yeah. <laughs> And like the new Amazon site will be in uh, Crystal City, which is you know yeah. the DC area. So like, if they have that fucking you know, evil pyramid of death there, and they own the Wapo, which is already bad enough, generally speaking, you know. But if if they're kind of in charge of that publication, um, then you know, game over for DMV. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mel, anything else you wanted to close with? Um, yeah, support Protean Magazine on Patreon and Kickstarter. Uh, also, you can also support Coffee with Comrades on Hell Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a lot of really cool stuff coming out for Coffee with Comrades coming up. So, a lot of good conversations, really interesting interviews. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. You yeah, guys thanks are for cool. joining us. Thanks for uh, talking about some nerdy shit close to my heart. So, Yeah, we're happy to have yeah. you. It was a really great uh, topic to dive into with you. And um, I know all three of us have been looking forward to doing this episode for a little while now. Yeah. Um, so We should do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just DM us. <laughs> Will do. Yeah. Um, so I guess... If you all liked that episode, feel free to stop by NeighborSciencePodcast.com. On Twitter, we're at NeighborSciPod. I'm at Solidarity underscore Goth. Ryan's at Handle of Rye. Mel is at Cold Brewed Tool. And what's the at for Coffee with Comrades? Um, it's just CoffeeWithComrades.com. Mm-hmm. It'll take you right to our Libsyn page. You can listen to any of our episodes. We just came out with an episode uh, with the Wrong Boys, with Seriously Wrong Podcast. Oh, nice. oh about, it was so good. <laughs> about uh, super online leftism and how toxic that is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.